You all right, Ian Scrivens? I'm all right, Craig. Are you all right, Craig? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks, Ian. Have you finished 18 Man yet? No. I listened to your podcast on originality and I got disheartened. It was all I could do to keep myself from the end of a rope. Still, at least I still have my trusty trombone. Have you taken up music, Ian? Music? Good afternoon to you. Earlier on today, apparently, a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. But having said that, actually, the weather will become very windy. What cigarette do you smoke, Doctor? Once again, the brand Kickstarter right now. So to see that given a wonderful modern production, it was something we really appreciate. Again, the production value looks absolutely outstanding. Because this is everything that board games can be. Uh, 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 understood the power of satire and ridicule. Of course, you can easily make the case against Brecht. He was a shameless magpie who stole from everyone, often without acknowledgement. He deluded himself that he could provide this an inner opposition to Albrecht's corrupt post-war Eastern Asian Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. I have heard this too. So have many men. They say it is a gift of the gods. It has the power to heal, bring peace, and rid the land of plague and famine. It's story time for the middle-aged. In the first episode of a new two-part drama, Craig, Joe and Norm take time out from the monotonous life inside the train shed to embark on an epic quest to the Hearts Mountains, a journey from which they may never return. Station to Station Episode 1 Chapter 1. The Hermit Rehearsed Hidden at the heart of the town's withered arteries, beyond the pedestrian barriers and rust-tinged platform warnings, there stood the old red brick walls of the train shed. Beneath an arch of glass and iron, adjacent to the rails and the bellies of dilapidated engines, was a shambles of an office space cobbled together for the railway crew. 
a place of rest and weak grey tea from cups with hairline cracks. Within, the blue milk light of a cathode ray tube television set flickered. I was like, mm. oh, okay. Well, sure. that's probably true. And so Absolutely. That's uh, probably true. So I think he's trying to do something nice. I think he's trying to help you find the joy in it. I think I think he's probably born from a nice place. Like when your kid makes you like worm soup. Ooh, daddy's hungry. Let's put some mud and some worms in a bowl. And oh, that'll make daddy feel better. Like the fact <laughs> that it's got no fucking chance of making you feel better whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> isn't the point that's not the sentiment what the thing is and what the sentiment is can be wildly dissimilar and maybe I'm looking at it from the wrong perspective my cynical horrible way I love this hobby I'm in love with this hobby it is in my opinion the best hobby (coughs) in the world and fuck me yeah the last thing I would want is for that passion diminished due to problems we were experiencing in the process of making the show that we have failed to recognize and we have failed to sort of quit while we're ahead i just feel like quite hollow at the moment there's just a lack of any kind of excitement or lack of any interest for just so many things i don't feel that kind of excitement about anything i'm reasonably into gaming at the moment not like peak ultra will go out four times a week to game levels but I've been where you are in terms of what you're describing right now. But the reality is, if gaming is the problem, then it will only be gaming. And then I can look at that close and go, okay, why am I disengaged with this thing right now? If it's almost everything, then I'm not going to go seeking for the answers in gaming. And sometimes the gaming can be the solution now, I'm almost prone to say, because before I went to Essen, I had no interest in gaming, right? And so sometimes it's just a case of, breaking the inertia yeah absolutely or recognizing you're done with it right but the weird thing is i don't think i am done with it because i was talking to chris spaff oh i'm done with him he's stealing you away from me joe i don't like chris why is joe not talking to me about essen he's famous <laughs> he's famous you know his name is on the box of vital Lacerda's kanban on the box i'll pack my things chris has a really really cool instagram so go go and check that out <laughs> next month the train rush will be brought to you by chris spaff and joe reese I like calling him Chris of Chris Bath Industries. You know, he keeps an Excel spreadsheet of pretty much everything he does. It's amazing. Yep. He got quite upset when I suggested that we split the Essen costs using an app called Splitwise because he said, oh, but this is a trivial Excel spreadsheet. There's only, there's only five things on it and <laughs> split it three ways. What the, oh, man, like, I'll install an app if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not that bothered, Chris, mate. If you want to do the spreadsheet, that's fine. As long as I don't have to do the spreadsheet, you fill your boots, man. Well, he is working to an industrial standard. He was just saying he spends more time thinking about games than he does actually playing the games. And and I was thinking, yeah, that, that's exactly the same for me. I'm still thinking about all of these games. It's still, like, a big part of my life. But so little joy in that. Like, I want to feel like there's some kind of purpose is this your way of making me feel guilty about the podcast having slowed down, Joe? Jesus Christ, this is, this is quite the beard. I need to feel like I'm part of something, Craig. What do you think, Craig? <laughs> I really enjoyed the time off to begin with, but I've really missed, like, just the stuff that goes into making the show. You know, I've really missed the parts of the process, not all of it. <laughs> My problem is that we're exploring all these new games, but none of them have had a hook or something which has driven us to explore more beyond those first superficial impressions of something. 
we feel like we're getting somewhere and then it's just that actually do we want to continue playing this game games that we can't find a way into or we feel like there's false starts with that Hasban what are we doing next there's nothing there's nothing it's interesting that so many podcasts chase the newest release newest popular release i'm proud that we chased instead the newest to us experience the thing is it's not really about new games or old games that doesn't matter what's the point in recording something or broadcasting something when you don't have anything meaningful to say about that something it's odd i just feel like maybe you're just trying to justify our terrible terrible podcast where we release no episodes Mm. Essentially, we're just parked on a domain and a name and some visual collateral. And uh, yeah, we call it a podcast. It's like one of those um, cities in Russia. They're like cardboard facias. They're like a Hollywood set, but they were building them to impress some visiting monarch or whatever. Look how wonderful our city is, but actually it was all fake. It was empty warehouses and structures with no actual internals. That's what our podcast is, essentially. It's got the veneer and appearance of a podcast without actually being a podcast. And and I absolutely couldn't agree more. Like, it does feel like the end of something and Hmm. you know we had a good thing i guess the energy that it takes to try and find that next thing that we're both really interested in is quite exhausting you're looking at the problem backwards rather than thinking about what you have for dinner you're thinking about what cutlery you want to use and then cooking a dinner accordingly rather than cooking the dinner and then picking the right cutlery to pick up the noodles making that more direct in case that was too subtle for you the podcast should serve the hobby the hobby shouldn't serve the podcast right Mm. of course there's times when it's the other way around but they should be like temporary interludes or waves or a bit of back and forth if you're thinking about the hobby purely about how to serve a podcast you end up killing the podcast. Because without enjoyment in the hobby, there is no podcast. If the podcast helps you get more out of the hobby, which it has done for me for years, because it's given me a a vehicle or a venue for chatting about this stuff and given me cause to think about it in a deeper way that I otherwise might not. But I wouldn't be forcing myself to game anymore if I didn't enjoy gaming anymore. And if the podcast was making me sad, oh man, I just wish I could relax. I wish I could just relax and play other stuff then I wouldn't force that either, right? Mm. Do you know what I found quite liberating in a similar situation? And I think I can speak with empathy here rather than sympathy because I've been in this exact place. If I was going to engage with things outside my wheelhouse, then I would like to play shorter games that weren't known dislikes. I'll take a punt on something that's a light word game. I've also found that doing that's allowed me to take my reviewer hat off. Oh, not that I'm a reviewer, but there's a mindset, isn't there? You have got a hat. <laughs> and once you get into that mindset, it's quite hard to step out of it. So now when I play train games, there's a lens I apply and I can't help it because I've glued the monocle into one of my eyes sockets. <laughs> but that monocle doesn't necessarily pollute my view or get involved in games that are just completely outside the scope of the podcast. Hmm. So I think just put the podcast on one side a second, right? Because that just comes naturally when the gaming's going well. Just like the choice of cutlery is obvious when you've decided what you actually want to eat mm-hmm. rather than I am using these fucking chopsticks whether I want to or not. Oh, but I fancy soup. Fuck. Maybe one of the issues is that I enjoy using the knife and fork and I get a real pleasure of twisting the spaghetti around and, you know, doing the lady in the tramp thing with you. <laughs> I'm the lady. <laughs> of course I'm a tramp if you see my beard. I can't remember the last time I got it professionally cut. I remember the Derailed podcast back when they were making episodes, which is a fantastic podcast. It's called the Derailed 18xx podcast. Chris and Fred are really, really lovely people. Oh, they did an episode, oh, an entire hour-long episode, an hour plus maybe, 
just on the private auction. I could imagine doing an episode on the private auction of 1830, the major companies, an episode on the route building, an episode on what order you should float things in what position, you know, there's We're not going so to do an episode on 1830. We're not going to do an episode on Haasbaum. So, and I don't, I don't want to sit here reading the rule book out for 90 minutes plus. Okay. Or counting backwards from 10 to 1 to some kind of spasmodic orgasm. <laughs> you have my utmost respect because that's awesome. So, the last episode. Still don't know what I was waiting for. And my time so I turned myself to face me. I've never caught a glimpse. How the others must see you think of. I'm much too fast to take that test. How's the weather been around your way, mate? Rainy? Just non-stop rain? Yeah, it's been shit around here as well. The garden looks like the Somme. I just, all the effort I invested in it in the summer and the early autumn, just a complete bloody waste. I wish I could just throw it away and buy a new garden every summer, you know? <laughs> a hurricane sweeps in and just sweeps it away. That would be good. Aren't the Americans lucky with their extreme weather events? Mm -hmm. Opportunity to reset and start anew. There's something exciting happening every year. Start the sirens. I like redecorating. I like redecorating. Welcome to The Train Rush, the David Bowie of train game podcasts. Originally, we were full of innovation. We sold out during the middle bit, and we've been rather morbid of late. Brought to you by your hosts, happy, gender-bending Craig Taylor and miserable, morbid, dead Joe Reese. <laughs> did you just say gender-bending? That's what Bowie did, isn't it? During the uh, 70s. Ah, uh, of course. When he was Iggy Stardust. Yeah, It's a 70s reference, mate. It's not a 2020s reference. You can't cancel me for things that happened in the 70s. <sighs> not unless you're Jimmy Savile, anyway. I wasn't born in the 70s like you, so... <laughs> Oh, I like how Daniel imagined you as a 50-year-old man. I really hate that. I'm such a morbid, miserable bastard that everybody puts 10 <laughs> years on me. Anyway. Don't anyway me or I'll start absolutely in you. I'll be Jake and you can be that fellow who says anyway. Who is that fellow who says anyway? I used to work with a guy called Dave, different Dave, and he used to... He was so funny. He used to come up, ask you how you were, whatever. And he blatantly wanted help with something at work. But the context was he always used to do a bit of preamble to try and make himself more likeable. Or how's the situation with so-and-so going? And you'd start describing it and you'd get like maybe 20 seconds into the description thinking he was showing a genuine interest. <laughs> and he'd go, well, anyway. <laughs> and they just go on some complete unrelated demand for something he needed. And it's like, oh my God, he's the anyway guy. Maybe we should do this in this podcast, so we say, oh, Craig, what did you think of Haasbar? Fantastic. My favourite game. It's my favourite game of the year. But anyway, uh, yeah, exactly. not interested. Exactly. Should I just get on with what I wanted to say? If you have to. If you're not enjoying it, Joe, it's fine. Don't worry about it. What do you think about the term Grail game? Oh, it's good, isn't it? Oh, I'm an old fart, so grail anything, there's no such thing. Or if you acquire it, it's always a disappointment versus the edifice you've built in your mind of what this experience was going to be. There won't be one game that is the answer, or maybe there is, but it's a bit of a weird trap. Mm. One would be, for me, Chaos in the Old World. I managed to pick up a copy brand new in Shrink. And now, um, even though I've played other people's copies, I'm afraid to crack open my copy of it. It's a grail game. Oh, I can't play that. <laughs> can't play that, Joe. I devalue it. And... Also, same title, having played it multiple times since acquiring it, but not my copy, 
I don't actually like it that much. Simultaneously, you're discouraged from interacting with it because it's too precious. But even if you can get over that kind of materialistic hurdle, can it live up to the fantasy you've built in your mind about what this thing's going to offer? Mm. Probably not. Like, you're fetishizing a potential experience. I think there are some positives that can come with the idea of a Grail game. That sense of adventure or a sense of purpose. You're seeking a prize, often against the grain of fashions because you're often yearning for something which is seemingly unattainable or out of print. If you're a fan of a particular designer that you might want to track down and find that earlier work that may not have been recognised at the time. But like you, I think for me, it's always been an anticlimax in the results of finding that long-lost game. And then there's something inside me which compels me to find a new grail, and it becomes this cycle of tracking down these games, never feeling content. I've got a quote from um, Leo Tolstoy. It's from his book, Anna Karenina. Hey, Anna Karenina! Sometimes I find enthusiastic Craig quite hard to deal with. It just seems unnatural. It just seems unnatural. I'm cold-ridden, virus-ridden, absolutely exhausted from dealing with cat diabetes, Craig. Don't expect sense. I expect that honesty rather than this energetic, excited response you're giving me. Fine. I'll be honest. Go on. Bob's away, Joe. I don't care. I'm disinterested, tired, Craig, now. He says, there can be no peace for us. Only misery and the greatest happiness. I just wonder what I'm feeling right now is neither extreme. No absolute miseries, but no happiness, just a kind of nothingness. Jesus Christ. The existential dread is unreal. Is this your turn to bring the podcast down seven levels? Like, what's going on? Is this what they taught you at media school, Joe? How to keep an audience? Like, man, and then... Then you tell them where they can find a big bottle of vodka and an empty prescription pad. Mm -hmm. And that's how you make everybody happy. Mm -hmm. How the fuck are you going to keep the energy up in this podcast? I mean, we just have, like, mechas dropping in and suddenly fighting us. That'd be good. I don't know. If you've ever watched Evangelion, I think they need to be kind of organic and nasty and yet strangely everybody in the show needs to be talking about them as if they're mechanistic and robotic. But every so often just like some bloody putrid limb pops out of somewhere it shouldn't. <laughs> just like my last girlfriend. I haven't seen that show. Oh, you'd love, you would love the weird Japanese view on Christianity and the undertones of that riven through it. It's an alien way of looking at something that you will be culturally, intrinsically familiar with. Like, it's old school, it's proper old-fashioned, just like this podcast. But if you can suffer the animation, I don't think I've seen an anime that does what that does. What was your old girlfriend like? It was horrendous. Occasionally her head would transform from like a strange robotic thing into a thing with teeth and blood pouring out the gums. It was very strange. And she had a pilot module that sat in the back of her neck. <laughs> I may be losing my grip on reality. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> and so the hosts set forth. They traced the dismantled remains of the old tracks which once wound west. On the horizon loomed the Hearts Mountains. Somewhere, deep within its shadows, promised site of the mythical shrine, the Blackwater Station. In the sky above the highest peak, a great comet burnt brightly, visible in the daylight. The plains had flooded in the recent deluge and the path was puddled and sodden. 
with a folded ordnance survey map tucked inside his tiger print jacket pocket, Craig led the ensemble. Safe inside his rucksack, he carried his complete edition of Francis Tresham's 1825. Every unit of the game was bubble wrapped, every component bagged, untouched. Several yards behind, the band marched in Wellington boots, white soles and bright lemon. The curved metal and conical bores of the cornet, the flugelhorn, the trombone and bass tuba glinted as they ploughed forth. In embroidered parade jackets, Norm Norman, Ian Scrivens, Fred Strauss, Jake Kloppenstein and Uwe Rosenberg wore rare smiles between puffed cheeks. Their malnourished lips were pale aside their crimson velvet collars. It was a joyous shamble of skinny flesh and gleaming alloys, screeching their hallowed harmonies to heaven. Why were you late this morning anyway? I had to deal with something in my loft. But, well, let me ask you honestly. Do you think we should record an episode about Jewel Gauge? Or Iberia Gauge? Or, you know, whatever the latest one is, Dinosaur Gauge? We can't. What do you mean? Something happened. Uh, We saw them in the cellar. The game started to merge into a sort of conjoined creature with tentacles. What? Jake tried to catch it, but it oozed through the drain cover. God knows where the thing is now. I don't. I dread to think what you're going to do with it. (laughs) It's a pity we didn't review the games when we had the chance. Pity? It's pity that stayed our hand. I just wonder to quote a friend of mine, Mr. Chris Phillips. Many games that deserve silence receive discussion. And many games that receive discussion deserve silence. We shouldn't be too eager to deal out reviews of games. And I'm not even going to credit him with that quote, Joe, because I think I just made that up entirely. We'll give no credit to Chris Phillips. The rocket surgeon who does excellent Age of Steam maps. Oh, he used to. Yeah, used to. Yeah. Don't know what happened. Oh, he lost the passion for the hobby, mate. Yeah, my heart tells me that these games have some part to play in it for good or evil before this is all over. Further down the path lay the remains of steel rails and an abandoned passenger carriage, its glass windows punched out by the tangle of creeping bellflower which overwhelmed it. Here it is, Joe. The westward rails. Let, let's keep going. No, 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 no. Let's, let's rest a while. Chapter 2. The Wheel of Look Fortune. My window. What do I see? Crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me. All the nightmares came today. It looks as though they're here to stay. Absolutely. Finding a dry seat within the old coach, Craig removed his backpack and they sat beneath a broken hole in the roof. Framed there, the sky and the great red star torn from its constellation. They gazed at the blue patterned Rexine fabric on the seat opposite. White dashes, dots, lines and squares. It had become damp and bleached yellow. The heralds of the old railway companies mismatched and missing their original pigment. It represents the setting in a warm and textured way. The problem is, there's probably too much of that warmth and texture because the key information you need, which is visibility on the potential routes, the contract routes, it's muddled and hidden amongst the texture present on the map. It's a little bit of a pain in the bum to read. And unless you are very familiar with US geography, and bear in mind, for a horrible limey Brit sort, I am very familiar with US geography, but many of the places that we're routing between wouldn't be able to tell you where they were 
prefer if I had an AR-15 pointed at my head. We don't normally talk about graphic design, but when we're talking about games that we feel like we don't want to play much more, I think that is a worthy point. It is that barrier to play. It creates friction that I find very frustrating. For games where the innate spatial challenge is difficult enough, I don't want to be caught by a bear trap of needlessly challenging presentation. So I don't think there's anything really to cover in the initial auction. It's your standard kind of winsome auction, really. The companies have different value depending on who has what. Do I want to let a player have exclusivity on a pair of companies? Do I want a company above me to shield what I'm doing with my more south company? What am I going to do with that company above? Am I going to eventually build with it so I can pick up some contracts? Am I going to, you know, there's probably some stuff there to explore. I guess there's a decision around whether you have multiple shares coming out of that initial auction. In the short term, building and developing that one company is maybe the best strategy. It's a similar structural thing to Union Station where as the company's earning potential goes up, you get paid more. It's the value of an action point, isn't mm -hmm. it? I can split between the two and I get seven, seven. 10, 10, whatever the thresholds are, who cares? Versus, oh, I'll get my 10, now I'll get my 25, now I'll get my 45. If you're in control of multiple companies, you're diluting the actions between them, aren't you? Mm. Like I said, in, in long term, you will probably need another company because if you're spending all your time directing your efforts into one company, you're going to run out of cubes. And then you want the second company to build further into the map by using leasing. And if you're lucky, you'll still have majority ownership of the company you're leasing from, so you get the majority of that money back. Leasing comes out of private money, not company money, because there is no concept of company money in this game. The shares do not capitalise the company, and the shares are not worth anything at the end of the game either. Another reason Joe's probably predisposed to not bother investigating it any further, because he quite likes charters with money on. Mm -hmm. It came up in your Irish gauge commentary that you felt that was an aspect of the game, that although it made it better as an on-ramp for Cubrow games to the new nascent player, you felt that you benefited from from having a treasury to manage. You felt that added a level of depth and complexity that you enjoyed. Yeah, agreed. And you were talking about leasing. I think that's potentially interesting, a tool that you can use hopping across the board to advantageous spaces where you know that somewhere along the line, a contract will come up. Your reach is doubled, essentially. Do you want to talk about contracts? Yeah, for me, I had that kind of brain glaze where you have lots of new information being exposed without the opportunity to react to it like standing mesmerized in front of a fruit machine bell 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 okay now it's a oh, bonus is coming up. and now it's telling me i've got a super win bonus what do i hold the hold buttons are flashing oh my god why are the hold buttons flashing i press the hold button joke at all the points it's using entirely dopamine hits to provide the entertainment. And I mean entirely superficial dopamine hits of stuff happening at speed and stuff happening that you didn't directly do making something else happen. It's the magic of a pinball machine. Though it doesn't have the speed. It takes a full minute to read Cherry 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 because you're trying to work out where on the board these places are, trying to decipher the route on the card and potential fruit machine excitement. It's got the fruit machine frantic energy. But it's so laggy. It's so laggy. Because all that stuff on the conveyor belt, once it sets off and it starts going, you're doing nothing by a procedure. And it takes a while to run that procedure. And then you go, oh, God, something else has happened. Oh, God, it's triggered another difficulty. We've got to do it all again. 
and then you rapidly realise that the stuff ain't that fun and the little marionettes are there dancing away doing their little Punch and Judy show but then you actually realise they're only moving about an inch and a half left and an inch and a half right and an inch and a half left and an inch and a half right on repeat what the thing is automatically doing actually isn't that thrilling Mm. we talked previously about utility builds where you're building conduits for potential because you can see those dotted line routes there and you know they're going to come out at some point in the game the entire deck comes out and then you build actualizing builds to connect the cities but you can't do the actualizing builds unless you did those initial infrastructure builds in the first place there's something to it but that sheer fruit machine chaos just leaves me with a vibe that (sighs) you feel that this is a distraction or meddles around with the pure information game that we're playing to the left of this fruit machine it feels like two incompatible elements you're playing snooker very skilled very careful you're lining up your shots and then we've got this you know the, the coins pouring out knocking you on the head from the right well, I find it dissatisfying because I don't feel the effect of that dopamine hit at all. Like, that's completely absent. But to defend the game a little, the contracts are tiered. You know that they're going to progress from east to west. And you would have thought that, yeah, with the progress of the game, that you will be steadily building west. These aren't coming out absolutely randomly. There is some predictability in it. However, there's a strange tension. Well, first of all, it's called Westwood Rails, and Jonathan pointed out, why are all these contracts then in a north-south direction? Because all the contracts then are incentivizing you to mash together. There's an intelligence here, isn't there? And we all like our shared incentives and alliances in train games, because the contracts definitely are structured in such a way that they reward alliances between players, or if not between players, between companies. There's actually interesting things to talk about here. You can play with those alliances outright working together and saying, look, there's a contract there, join up here, join up there. And in a three-player game, that didn't work very well because Dale and I teamed up, leaving you cold. The extent of your competition being trying to nip small advantages, small edges here and there off each other. No, I'm going to get that extra link. No, well, this time I'm going to get that extra link. And whereas I was getting no links. A little bit of collegiate competition between the allies versus horrible Craig sitting in the corner. You ended up in that game having two of the South companies. I inadvertently ended up with an exclusivity thing, which is awful because you don't have the action points to build a pair of networks. And if you aren't intermingled with other networks, it's harder to be part of the route payoff for these contracts. Maybe there's more potential there in terms of the upgrading. Not an oft-used move, but it kind of reminds me of the, the barn dances in Texas and Pacific. You know, that game of chicken. If you are decoupled, if you are running your own network, you can take that gamble on the upgrades and be quite safe on grabbing it. So it's like a counterweight for that. Therefore, I can grab the upgrades. Whereas if you're intermingled, the chances of them having them snapped out of your hand is just too high, so no one does it. So the game encourages these north-south build directions. And the game also provides only a limited number of cubes. And from the beginning to the mid-game, that works successfully. But you're using cubes in a direction which doesn't fulfill the late game contracts. Did we not lease enough, maybe? Knowing that in a future game, you could really sprint out using two companies, leasing off each other to go and gain a monopoly over those Western contracts, potentially. The late contracts aren't worth any more than the early contracts in practical terms. You just want to grab the majority of the contracts. You don't care whether they're the early contracts or the late contracts. And the early ones, are they more contested? Because 
everybody starts east so you're more likely to share the early ones and if you put a concerted effort in driving west the idea is you're going to get bigger shares of the later ones but then in practice does it work out like that because are the later ones actually less assured because you're going to run out of cubes potentially before you even reach them Hmm. or you're spending your own money to lease across i guess there's that balance of how much money do you spend to do that is the payoff worth it if you're paying it to yourself, fair enough. But, I mean, realistically, what's the odds of people letting you do that without any interference? Pretty minimal, right? We remove the contracts away from the game. How would that feel, do you think? Then it's a game without a hook. It's like two-thirds of a game. And the third of the game it's missing is kind of like the heart, the nervous system. It's the bit it needs to be remotely alive. Yet what you've got here is technically alive, but in the same way as an ambulatory jellyfish might be. I feel like... There's structurally an undesired tension because you've got explicit incentives driving the companies north-south, but you've got this implicit incentive that says you've got to go west because you won't fulfil all the contracts if you don't go west. But if companies have used you know, many of their cubes to do so, they, they can't actually reach west. And if they can't reach west, the conveyor belt stops functioning. An entire section of the game switched off. And as the contracts running out are part of an end game trigger, you could potentially have a game that struggles to end. So you've got two parts of the game kind of tearing in opposite directions. The contracts aren't channeled in a way which accelerates that building process or promotes that building process west. It just feels like at odds with itself. It just doesn't feel quite right. You've got this exciting fruit machine, which is popping and binging and spluttering all over the place to begin with. Gross. And actually, without it, towards the end of that game, just felt very dry and unexciting. And I was wondering whether the incentives to actually go west, like you said, the contracts aren't worth anymore. And I just feel that bumper one on the stock market for reaching one of the furthermost western cities on the board, enough to even bother. And the only real incentive to build west, then, is to prevent this state from occurring. It seems to me there's no carrot it's just the opposite. There's no underlying award to go west. Mm. I was thinking back to Union Station, and I wondered whether actually destination cities in this game would have worked far better to give that incentive, promote westward building, maybe design that in such a way that it encourages uh, the rail lines to cross over each other, maybe, and to kind of interlace the companies to encourage more blocking and more leasing and just give a more a reason to go that way. But is there a similar quality of decision offered elsewhere in the train gaming world without a big fruit machine sitting to the right? <laughs> yes. Let's look beyond that a moment. I can't. <laughs> All I can see is the fruit machine. Let's just talk about issuing shares. I think actually this is an interesting decision. It's more interesting than Irish Gage because Irish Gage, they withhold value for the shares that you purchase through the game. With this, none of these shares have any value and you could potentially look at this as being a flaw to this game. I called it the idiot tax, didn't I? Yes. You win that share if you want, it's the idiot tax. Yeah, you are throwing money in the bin. That is what you are doing. So you've really got to assess, now whether this is difficult or not, how much value is in that share, what's it going to pay back through potential dividends, how much money is it going to make you through the game, how much money is it going to deprive another player. 
but you don't want to throw too much money in it because it is wasted. And at certain points, I think particularly towards the end of the game, you know the exact value of that share. And paying any more is what we were calling idiot tax. What this does, I think, it does incentivize holding onto a single company, I think, and building out the success of that company. Now, what that could do potentially to the arc of the game is you're building, building, building forever until you can't build anymore. But we were wrong, Joe. We were wrong. What value control? That was a kind of superficial read. The problem is you've got two endgame triggers, which is all the cubes gone, all the contracts run out Mm. and now the contracts are tied somewhat to the cubes because the contracts only come out when you're striking dividends and the only way to do that is to lay cubes well ish you can nickel and dime up the odd notch by putting shares up for auction and upgrading but it's not huge is it no the, the majority of the bumps are coming from building and Dale held two of the companies exclusively. He could just build for long-term value, use the invest action to make the bumps he was getting bigger than they otherwise might be, work towards exclusivity on contracts because he's still got cubes left and can lease to get further distance for the later contracts. Our companies had no cubes left. Well, our relevant companies had no cubes left. So we either had to try and chew through a million billion green cubes to drive that one aspect of the clock down or auction shares that he wasn't allowing us to win or more to the point we were not willing to pay for we deemed them idiot tax and here's the thing he managed to pay that idiot tax multiple times over but work those companies for a long-term payout which just shot him past your score and the winner elect if you will proven totally wrong because those shares had more value than their superficial read of what they were set to pay because he could build that pay to be bigger with some complementary actions So there is value in control over those companies. And there is that balance, that thin line between paying too much for them. That probably tells you the game has got more underneath it than we were giving it credit. The nuance is how much are you willing to pay for that control and how much is Mm -hmm. Dale willing to pay to defend that control? What is the value of that share and why is the value? There's two aspects to the why and the game state dictates the actual financial value of the share. Now, what I would say is that game was absolutely miserable through our own stubbornness and through Dale's stubbornness of actually wanting to grind this out and... Even when we said he could win. (laughs) Yes. Even when we said, Dale, you've won. We accept you've won. No, I just want to do this. No, Dale, stop winning at us. Stop winning at us. Please. (laughs) Oh, I'm not going to be able to wash all your win off my clothes. We both conceded. We didn't have to play through the miserable bit. Our stubbornness is not a flaw in the game. It sort of reminds me of the train lock debate about the old Prince Albert, 1871, whatever it's called. Except I still maintain that a lot of the misery was caused because the fruit machine had been unplugged. It's interesting. It seems that you really, really do struggle to just leave something behind. I know you're doing this thinking when you're on a drive or you're walking the cat or you're plastering the windows or whatever the day-to-day things you do around Casa Reese is. But the whole how and when do you say enough is enough? Why do you care? Why are you putting in more effort than the designer at that point? I think you're imagining a world where I just keep repeatedly playing a game over and over and over and over and over again. No, I'm imagining a world where you're walking around in a black trench coat thinking about this stuff with emo music on in the background. But you're sitting <laughs> next to a window and rain's splashing against the window. There's always a solitary <laughs> tear rolling down one of your cheeks. That's the world I'm imagining. That's, that's true. 
That part's true, yeah. That's obviously just where our lives are just different, aren't they? I don't have a dedicated moping room, you're right, yeah. I do think ultimately, though, it's largely derivative. Nostalgia's interesting in, like, a myriad of respects, but I think I would prefer to play from a game of the period or play a game which is kind of breaking new frontiers. I don't think, even if we did play this another 10, 20 times, I don't feel there's an undiscovered depth there, and I don't think it's coming up with new feelings or new gameplay experiences. I kindly ask you not to threaten me with playing this another 10 or 20 times. (laughs) The other thing, if I'm honest, that puts me off it is when the publisher actively says, don't think too hard. Just look at your friends across the table, chill, stick some Netflix on, maybe start a barbecue and there happened to be a game with trains on it in the room or whatever the, I forget what the vibe was of that video. But The publisher is not advocating exploration. They're probably advocating exploration, they're not advocating deconstruction. And deconstruction is something we like to do. We like to slice a game down to its bones and sinew and try and work out why it brings us joy or why it fails to bring us joy. And if a publisher is saying, oh, you shouldn't do that, don't do that. I'm inclined just to take their advice hmm. and to move on to something that doesn't qualify the way I should interact with it. Chapter 3. The Fool The footpath led to an ancient causeway. Ruts chiselled by pilgrims tracing and retracing their steps to Blackwater Station. Over a stone bridge past a vacant toll house, the track became aligned with trees of oak and elm. I think when we're creating media, there's a certain egotism in wanting to provide the final word or the all-encompassing... The authoritative definition, yeah. And actually what I enjoy from podcasts and board game media is when I get a sense that they know absolutely everything about that game and when I get a sense they haven't reached a point where they are that authority or expert on the game, I'm a bit disappointed pointed or feel like it's too superficial a read and so there is a passion even though we're discarding a game and we're not going to think about it there's still underlying thoughts and cycles of thought based on that experience and reflecting on what I learned, I suppose, from one game and how I can apply that to the next game. That's fair and maybe I was a bit glib and throwaway in my reaction but and it's a but. Anything followed by a but isn't an apology. <laughs> and actually, I take on board what you're saying there. Because I think I've learned from games that haven't landed with me. Even games we've done full podcasts on, I've learned properties of games that don't work for my group or that don't interest me or flaws that I think from a motivation or even a math model point of view are danger signs that this game isn't going to either work for me or work in the round. There's learning from negative experiences that can be born too. Is there a but? No, not really. (laughs) I guess if there was a qualification, it would be that sometimes... It's knowing when to let go, maybe? It's the pain of something. I can probably learn something from every game that isn't worthy of my time to play or to research. I have a stress budget or a boredom budget. Our group has a jank budget. Mm -hmm. And how much of that budget do I want to spend on something where I don't forecast a useful outcome? 
that extended thought of thinking about the next podcast, the next thing we cover, relationships, drawing lines between things on my serial killer tracker board. That's probably something I leave to my subconscious. Yeah. Well, I've actually got yarns of string. My whole house is like a spider web. When people attempt to do the uh, 18xx family tree thing about what inspired what, even though it's not as simple as that, you're trying to do it with cube rails. No, 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 don't pull that Fred Benjamin! That one needs from Chicago Express! Ah, it's going to bring the whole house down! No! If there's games that aren't so terrible, inverted commas, that we want to talk about why they're so terrible, and it's not a game that's so brilliant that we want to talk about its brilliance, and it's just kind of in that middle space of, yeah, it's all right. It does this thing that puts me off, and that's why I only grade it as all right. And the thing is, though, we do our best to force through bad experiences. We do our best to give the game as much of a chance. It feels like... There's guilt associated with it. There's a few games where I've left things behind going, no, I haven't got anything positive to say about that on any level. Or, actually, this isn't even going to be an enjoyable conversation to listen to. Maybe I owed it more. Maybe if I just tried a little bit harder and engaged this game where it is... I can tell you the thing that will make it alive for you and you can work out if you're that person or not. I think that's like a saviour complex almost. Mm. There's no real obligation to throw your hobby time down a well. There's so many games released, you have to be able to write some of them off for your own sanity. I wonder about that star, Mr Craig. Do you not find it strange that it's hanging directly above our destination? No. Like it's guiding our way? It's just a comet. I think it's a beacon of hope. Hope we'll find our way again. Yeah, or it's an omen of doom. And you'll be able to record another episode after this. No, no. After a while, a clearing opened, revealing the last stop for travelers, a thatched roof tavern with a smoking chimney. In recent years, golden arches had been erected either side of the inn. Jesters juggling and tumbling, painted faces under neon lights. The inn's tin sign swung idly, a topless figure with a crown. White hair poured over the creature's breasts, its legs a swathe of tentacles, all scales and fins against a sea of emerald green. The band tramped towards the stables to rest, but Norm was pulled aside to enter the Jekyll and Hyde. Come on, this way, Norm. Let's, um, you know, crack open the champagne. He's me. Pint of any old slot, please. We don't serve the likes of you here. What? But other than that, there's no reason Joe really accepts the likes. Oh, wow, you're playing something with trade. Or is that any good? But if he, like, if he says something... Excuse me? Excuse me. Look, I've listened to you talk, and I've told you before, I'm so frustrated with board game media using their platforms to criticize small indie creators. What the fuck? As unbelievable as it seems, you have an audience with the responsibility. Do yeah, better. In a game, oh, if it can hurt some player, fucking that's God. the rule. Excuse me, we're just looking and for a drink. We're on a long journey. Text, the worst way you can take his message, that's the intended message. Let's find a quiet corner away from the bar. Norm, order for us, will ya? Three of your iconic Golden Goose vodka martinis, please. Cheers. 
You know, as someone who's created a number of things, both good and bad, and with their own specific audience, you pull from things you like and how you want that to feel. You have a space and a function for someone at some time. If you don't like it, cool, don't engage with it. The publicly lambasted, that's tiresome. I keep telling the boys, but they won't listen. I don't think they know what they want or even what they're doing. Look, an individual creating something they enjoy as a love letter to something they appreciate, you don't have to like it, but you don't get to tell the world it doesn't need to exist. It's inflammatory, arrogant, and juvenile. I wish we could all just get on, you know? We're all one community, and we all love the same hobby. Here you go, guys. Oh, <laughs> horrible Craig singing in the corner. Fuck off, Norm. Get back to the stables. Okay. One of my big problems with board game media is enthusiasm. Even though I said I'm thinking about games all the time, and I'm talking to you all the time, I'm talking to other people who are enjoying games. Just the general board game discourse, that kind of unbridled excitement in videos, playthrough streams, or on podcasts, even in like forums and chat groups, that sense of perpetual excitement and happiness. It's just, I'm just finding quite tiring and quite irritating. That constant sense of theatrical hyperventilation just doesn't match my experience. And it's just hard to relate to those super awesome experiences. How on earth can these games amaze and astound? How's that even possible? Where they just basically enjoy everything. And when I look around at everything, it just seems like a cultural wasteland. Like I can't find a grip on anybody's enjoyment. It's feelings as opposed to objective metrics, right? Feelings don't necessarily have a hard couple into reality. People are in different places on their journey. You were probably a bit like that. Mm -hmm. Or compared to how you are now, you were probably a bit like that. I know at certain points I was hyper excited about everything and buying everything within my means anyway and now the prospect of buying something that isn't novel just buying a uh, same idea heated up just ugh. problem is borderline vomit inducing and an experience has to have some sort of meaningful impact or maybe because i've played with games that stand a lot of digging things that on a superficial examination seem to be five play wonders i don't see why i'd want to even play them once given a free hand i don't want to play a five out of ten anymore mm. i'd rather play a zero which is yeah there's more zeros than there are tens i suspect but to somebody who's new in the hobby and has never experienced the mechanisms that thing offers even if they're not new per se but just only new to them these are the people that are on the whole acting as ambassadors right it ties into that sense of addiction though doesn't it seeking bigger and bigger highs exactly and then the inane stuff that you used to do doesn't give you the buzz anymore because it's not exposing you to the brand new thing because actually it's harder and harder to find a brand new thing because you've been mm -hmm. exposed to so many base level mechanisms now what's the brand new thing that's left ah maybe it's like the consumption of any media like music or films and it comes down to taste so while somebody might enjoy listening to Taylor Swift, I might enjoy listening to Nick Cave, or where people might enjoy like a gospel choir, maybe I prefer the kind of murmurings of a hermit. And I think maybe it's unfair of me to be so miserable about one end of the scale when I... Get I, I get what you're saying. Expressing the fact this is a preference, it's a local value. Probably also that psychological effect where you notice the things that either 
thrill you or disgust you and the large swathes of stuff in the middle that is inside the tolerable boundary doesn't even exist as far as your memories are concerned mm -hmm. there's i think it's the outlier effect it's something like that where you remember things at the fringes and you're saying that you're observing more things at the fringe of joy of unrelatable saccharine synthetic joy than you are at the darker or colder more analytical end more things akin to i don't want to say advertising that's i'm just gonna say it because i said it now <laughs> akin to advertising and kids really enjoying the play dough kitchen pumping out crappy hamburgers <laughs> and they're there with their big old cheesy smiles coated in vaseline as opposed to noticing the documentaries where they talk about how many children have been killed last year mm. by the perils of eating play-doh <laughs> exactly that and i want all my media to be those serious morbid documentaries i get a sense that i cannot trust those people you get a sense that you can't trust those personas sure everybody has a persona in the state of performing the second the little red light goes on on some level it's a performance that energy it seems to be more engaging right fast pace short points quick summaries more 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 and there's another kind of filter discussing only what you're interested in or excited by a feeling that you don't want to spend your time being negative and also you could be excited to engage with the audience so that excitement actually might come from like a social side rather than how you're viewing the product per se also the sense of riding a social wave of excitement so you've got the latest hot new thing that everyone's talking about and now you're talking about it or you're talking about it and now everyone else is talking about it there's a sense that time and money invested in a hobby must have a positive outcome why on earth are we doing all of this if it isn't positive and also the respect and admiration for the designers and all the creative people who put a lot of work into a product. You mean like the rule book reviewers for 1880, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Almost, almost 100% perfect proof read rule book there, almost. I blamed the 1% on Dave Berry. He ruined that last 1%. I heard that he intentionally sabotaged the map board this kind of boundless enthusiasm I just feel like I can't relate to it what I see as basically hyper exaggerated emotions can they really mean it is that partly cultural as well though the primary exporter of media in this space and actually probably in any space is America stroke Americans I remember when I was a young man traveling around the States and you're in the motel and it's after you've got rid of the prostitute and you're just there by yourself Guys, I was nine, I didn't have a prostitute. I had a Game Boy, which is a very different thing. And you're watching the American TV and the adverts are incredibly intense. Here's Big Bed Bob and he's hacking down the prices. Big Bed Bob! This will be the best bed you ever slept in. Better than all the competition. Big Bed Bob! And it was just like advertisements from another planet. <laughs> this normalization of bombastic, quasi-nuclear powered advertisements to get you to pay attention to get you off your seat ringing 0800 9999 bed it was just yeah insane british adverts just weren't like that they were either subtly funny or they were calm or they were i don't want to say peaceful but they might have a sweet message behind it you know 
back in the day when I was a kid and I had to walk uphill to school both ways, there used to be a big cultural gap between consumed media. It wasn't as easy to import American media. We certainly didn't have this global marketplace where American adverts were borderline interchangeable with UK adverts. Yeah, I wonder that actually, is that just the American way of talking about something? And then when someone's got their performance hat on, that's how they are. We talked about our good friend Jake when he's in our basement. He explains that the men of Minnesota are more similar to the Brits in that they're kind of conflict adverse and conflicts done through passive aggression and sarcasm and that kind of thing, you know. Then you talk to someone from Florida and they're very, very different culturally, and that's fine. There's more than one America in that sense. But when it comes to that high energy output in advertorial media, there's a certain way of doing that in the American style. So I guess if you're brought up around a lot of media, you're going to emulate what you've seen and experienced. That's my theory. The thing is, I'm not even like advocating for the opposite. I just want a board game media landscape that's more critical, more sophisticated, more patient, that goes into more depth and more diversity in what is broadcast generally because 99% of the media is just talking about the lows and highs of the very first few plays and just a presentation that feels heartfelt to me and honest and explores those emotions and those feelings in an articulate manner but in defense of your average media creator they probably don't have aspirations to be independent critics they are simply game enthusiasts and maybe the word influencer is a more accurate term than a reviewer but this kind of positive enthusiasm is defended with words which seem really evangelistic these people are ambassadors with the goal to grow the hobby or spread the joy of the hobby, even going so far to talk about converting people and getting people hooked. And that kind of language around that positivity just makes me feel a little bit uneasy. And that is where it feeds back into that idea of not feeling comfortable with this happiness or this joy or this presented enthusiasm. There's that sense board game media is acting not only as a door-to-door -door salesman, but almost like a Jehovah's Witness. Is there also an element of pot commitment there as well, though, or validation? I've spent too much money or I've invested too much of myself in this thing, and the only way I can make myself feel like it's the right decision is to get someone to make it with me. Being surrounded by people who think in a similar way, behave in a similar way. You can't all be wrong, right? Exactly. There's security in that. If it's a pure joy, why do you need to have somebody else doing it to validate it? And I'll engage with the existing communities, but I'm not looking to grow the hobby. Do skiers feel like they need to inculcate more skiers? If we talk about growing the hobby, it's not just about number of participators, it's also about number of buyers and number of games produced. And you think, hold up a second, just because more games are produced doesn't mean there's more good games being produced. And there is no sort of moral obligation to buy the stuff that's made. If somebody makes a game and it's not very good, I don't think encouraging people to blindly consume in the bid of growing the hobby financially is particularly in the interest of the people that are being encouraged to consume. But when you look at the way the whole thing is promoted right now, you've got enthusiasts promoting to other enthusiasts, encouraging each other to consume and try the new thing, look at the new thing, look at the new thing. It's always a conversation about the new thing, it's never a conversation about the old thing that people haven't discovered or the community game you can build yourself. It's always about the new thing that you can buy right now. 
and you just look at it and go, the only real benefactor here, the only real benefactor from a material being able to put food on the table point of view, are the publishers. They get free advertising and customers encouraging each other to overconsume. And I'm going to self-declare here, right? <clears throat> because I go into my game room and have a look at the stuff on the shelves. And you can look at this kind of almost like a geological timeline where I can see the periods where I've sprint purchased everything, where I've had this kind of rabid consumerist mindset, need to collect it all, don't want to miss this, games go out of print, you are still on for what you bought them for roughly, or blah, 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 blah. It's okay, I'm working a good job right now. And now I look at it and I go, Jesus H Christ, if I spent every night between now and the time I'm dead, playing one game every night I probably wouldn't get through all of these and you think how on earth did I get into a mindset where I was consuming to that degree and then you go forward and you think oh hold up a second hold up a second this wasn't in a vacuum well I'm not a stupid person yes I've got an addictive personality yes when I get into hobbies I get into them real deep but there's something special about this board gaming hobby where that level of consumption I'm not even the worst person I know by a long shot I don't know how um, how good your Greek is, Craig. N is in, and theos is God, or enthusiasm, is divinely inspired, possessed by a God. The actual word enthusiasm came into the English language in the 1600s. And it's really interesting, actually, because the word enthusiasm was a word only used to describe the passions of religious belief. And throughout that period of the 17th century and 18th century, there was a lot of discussion of the philosophers at the time, the heads of church, discussion around enthusiasm and the effects it has on society. And I was reading, reading something <coughs> written by the, the third earl of shaftesbury craig we're all fans of the third earl of shaftesbury at the train show don't we it was a sequel to stevenson's rocket i believe he was a little bit conceited but he was a useful engine he incorporated this idea of enthusiasm in terms of religion into everyday manners and he broke it into two distinguished types of enthusiasm we've got like a more introverted enthusiasm which was apparently excessive autonomy, self-absorbed, not very social. And he titled that The Clown, alienated, is inward-looking, is remote from the rest of society, untouched by the influences of the court. The clowns play on paper maps and with laminated tiles. It seems absurd. And then you get the other type, which is almost like an extroverted enthusiasm, which is meant to be this excessive sociability and uncontrolled gregariousness. And the third Earl of Shaftesbury calls that the courtier, someone over-refined and unmeasured, that's his words, basically preoccupied with that social energy, spreading the joy of the hobby. So when I was talking earlier about the spectrum, you've got two points, two extreme points of sociability going from those who are untutored in the worldly manners to those who are schooled in nothing but such worldliness, basically. That was a little quote there from Lawrence E. Klein. You think that these extremes of beliefs or enthusiasm was actually considered a problem in society back then. And I'm not saying, Craig, I'm not saying that all content creators were the cause of the witch trials in Salem. We're not saying that, are we, Craig? You are, I'm not. So by that sense, it's true. We aren't saying it. 
Joe is saying it. I just thought it was quite interesting to read these thoughts at the time. The people were trying to understand these kind of extreme ways of acting around something which is a really important interest of them, which was religion and how do you display that? How do you conform and what is conformity and how do you behave in polite society when you're really passionate about something? Do you squirrel yourself away and do not socialise or do you go the opposite end and you're advertising it and you're trying to convert people and you're really excited about it, borderline frenzied. Basically, enthusiasts are essentially members of sects. Sex? Se yes, please. S sects. Can you hear the... Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Is, is that like when you did cut something into six slices? It's the community at large, chopped up into little groups who then all copulate together. So, look, I mean, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And I think that's a wider thing. I think that's more a symptom than a cause, right? So that's just the, like, a, okay, I find these people annoying because I'm in this place in the hobby and I find it hard to relate to their enthusiasm. A lot of the reason that I feel board game discourse has moved away from what I value, I think I use a colourful phrase like flush down the toilet, but we'll move swiftly on past that, is that it's very awkward to give bad feedback to people about something they own, let alone something they've created. I remember a while ago, it was probably about five, six years ago, when the whole phrase of not yucking someone else's yum came up. Mm, that's a horrible, horrible phrase. I know, it's, it's gross, isn't it? I like to yuck on the people who yuck on the people who yuck on people's yum. You're such a messy yucker, yeah. It's just serendipity. It happened a few places at once where I was present. Maybe I'm the cause. Patient zero. Where these groups are saying, nope, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. If someone else likes a game and you don't like it, you'll make them feel bad. And it just basically shut down any sensible discussion about why you might not like a game or trying to explore what somebody got out of a game that you didn't because you couldn't offer your honest, unvarnished perspective. You had to offer this softened, couched view of the artifact for fear of offending the other person. But if even minor negativity, I bounced off this because of this experience, can you sell it to me? I want to be wrong. Was that just an outlying experience or is that intrinsic to the game? If that is perceived as hostility that's going to make somebody descend into a crime fit, then there's no conversation about games anymore, right? It's just everybody's shouting advertisements at each other like some dystopian cyberpunk future. Whereas I feel the right social response there is to tell the person who's reacting badly because you don't agree with their view on a game to just grow the fuck up. Like, absolutely seriously, just fucking grow up. You are not your toys. I'm not insulting your kids. I'm not insulting the place you went to school and the standard of your education. I'm disagreeing with you about the quality of a thing you spent a few hours wages on. And you can move on for the loss of half an hour's wages. What is your emotional attachment to this box of cardboard you purchased? And even if you've got some a massive sentimental attachment to it, my lack of enjoyment of it should infringe on your enjoyment of it. We do a train game podcast, Joe. We do a game podcast. And therefore, when we approach these things, we approach them analytically and we'll make comparisons, okay? I will not stand for American Rails and say it's a better design than Chicago Express. I'm sorry, I won't. I've heard that argument before. People say to me, oh, I think American Rails is objectively better than Chicago Express. And I absolutely don't think it is. But if somebody asked me to play a game of American Rails because they bought it with them to game night, I would happily play it because it's still a damn sight better than a lot of other things out there. Okay, it's built on good bones and I still probably have a perfectly nice time. But don't ask me to fake 
and enthusiasm and an excitement and give it a passing academic grade that I don't think it deserves. And if me expressing that shudders you to the core of your gaming identity, man, there's something wrong here because we don't have a relationship where we can be honest with each other. If I can't be honest with you about your choice of toys, whether you prefer Captain America to fucking Spider-Man, <laughs> then what happens when something seriously goes wrong in either one of our lives? Oh, Joe, man, I'm, I'm sure I can't actually pay you that money I promised. Can you give me a couple of months grace? No, fuck you! Fuck you! That's it, you're dead to me because you don't like Spider-Man! Seriously. Oh, man. I was reading some responses to Eric Twice's review of Ark Nova and plenty of passionate people talking to the rest of the forum saying, please, I beg you, not to take this review into account. Just don't listen to that review and don't take on board those points. They're wrong about my game, the game that I've bought, that I didn't design and I didn't produce in any way. I just don't understand that kind of rabid tribalism to defend your choice of toy. I don't like Euros. doesn't mean I don't like Euro players. It doesn't mean I don't respect your choice to buy Euros. Christ, not at all. There's a failure in me that I don't find pleasure in some of those things that fill your brain with excitement. It's almost like manipulating a stock market, isn't it? You don't want the bad words to get out. Maybe you're fearful that the general zeitgeist is going to move on. And then you'll lose your opportunity to play it. Because if you can't find the willing players because the news has got out, there's this flaw, there's this failing, there's this better thing that's beyond the horizon, you won't get to play with your toy and then your toy will just make you sad. And it comes back to the whole, and I never really fulfilled the opportunity, the promise that this toy was meant to provide. We can argue whether they're art or not, that's fine. Like, a really beautiful rocking horse is arguably art. It's also a toy. These terms aren't mutually exclusive. You know, the more we talk, the more I wish I lived in a cave somewhere, locked away from the whole of humanity with a stack of clamshells and a copy of 1830 or something. Craig drank the last of his cocktail and Joe began to feel an uneasy sensation creep over him. While the crowd remained jolly, atmosphere in the nook dipped in shadow. The lamps flickered. It had become apparent only then that a cloaked and hooded figure had seated next to them. Besides the empty glasses, tarot cards were flushed. The figure held an open hand towards them, as if inviting the pair to have their palms be read. He said, welcome. Welcome. To which Joe replied, I'm confused. Do we know you? I'm confused. Do we know you? Joe, it's natural to be confused. If you have been playing niche board games for a while, it can lead to certain problems. If the game is too long, too complex, or too nerdy, a family won't be able to play it. Picture the following. You are meeting with your family to play a cube rail game, a heavy economic game, like the 30. You turn up to your cousin and say, Cousin, our grandma is a menace to this earth. We have to wipe her out and prevent her from having any fun whatsoever. So, you group together and you attack grandma who is winning and you knock her out of the game and she's no longer playing, no longer having fun, no longer interacting. And this is not just a one-time thing. Why? Think about grandma or your father. You won't find any happy families having a jolly good time together playing 1930. And cube rail games isn't really representative of the wider player base or really anyone. And this is not good, you are from having any fun whatsoever. And you don't want to fight, you want to have fun. 
believed in yourself, you must go on the quest in exploration where you become barbarian and fight down the forces of evil. Thank you. Joe looked down at the cards. The Hierophant, a priestess laid down reverse, the lovers, the wheel of fortune, and death. I don't want the look of this.